0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dating Laughter and Disasters with me, Lulu Johnson. A show that's all about the highs and lows of modern dating and usually on this podcast we laugh about it but this is a more serious episode this week. Sophie from Sydney got in touch. She wanted to come on to describe her story of being stalked by a boyfriend who then became ex-boyfriend. It is a story full of twists and turns. Sophie tells the story in a very captivating way uh, but it does come with a trigger warning. There is talks of uh, self-harm of suicide and things like that so please do be aware so without further ado let's start the show Yo! hi right, Sophie welcome to the show thanks for having me lovely to have <laughs> you here um so this week's topic is going to be less light and fun like mm-hmm. I've had previously you have uh, we're going to be talking today about stalking yes yeah. so we should
1: say a quick trigger warning Absolutely. um so there's going to be talk of you know there might be some talk of suicide um ideation uh, and uh yes yeah, stalking and some other topics like gaslighting and all that sort of stuff i'm sure you've talked about that in previous podcasts but just to yeah give a forewarning. Yeah, about that thank you for that and first
0: yeah. actually we must cheers this is oh how yes I always cheers start. so cheers and welcome <laughs> so if you really give us a quick introduction um who you are? How long you've been in Berlin? Yeah. What your dating status is, and where you're from?
1: Okay, uh, I have been in Berlin uh, just over five years now. Um, my name is Sophie. We already established that. <laughs> Hi, but, uh, dating status: I am no longer on the dating scene. I have a partner, and we live together now. It's been over a year, and uh, yeah, he's lovely. And you know, obviously, this is the happy ending sort of story to the topic we're going to get into. But yeah. That's okay. my and where are you status. From? I'm from Sydney, Australia. Australia, great. Australia,
0: Australia. Yes. <laughs> FYI, if I start speaking in a very irritating Australian accent, it's it's out of love. It actually love doesn't you. bother me at all. Oh, <laughs> it's finds it so endearing. So <laughs> yeah, please go for your life. <laughs> I'll do it. Okay, so Sophie start us off. So um, about this story that you had a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, so it would be coming up on sort of six years uh, now from what happened, but. Essentially, I was living in London, um, for two years as a veterinary nurse, uh, and traveling around to different vet clinics and living above the clinics because that's sort of how things went as a freelancer. Um, and then as you know, like living in London, I was trying to get out on the scene and date, uh, and I wasn't having very much luck. Um, just sort of, you know, people who weren't interested in relationships and like some dubious behavior. So, um, I was, you know, just living my life and then I came across someone online on a dating app and, you know, it was all kind of lovely at the beginning and we met up and had sort of a wonderful time and then, you know, what happened from that was, you know, just this whirlwind kind of romance Um, and it wasn't something I was necessarily used to, that sort of style of kind of, you know, that chivalry, that old school chivalry. Um, sort of picking me up to go on dates and, you know, buying flowers and gifts and just big kind of, you know, statements of love okay. and all of that stuff very early. And when you're kind of not aware of that beforehand, you really, you know, take it to heart and you sort of think, wow, what just, what have I been doing up until this point? You know, I dated people in the past who were terrible, but it was very obvious in the beginning <laughs> that mm-hmm. there was. You know cheating and lying and all of the sort of stuff that happens um but this was you know this didn't seem that way because it was just so overtly loving from the um, very from, from, from the least. very beginning mm-hmm. and um so yeah i was living in a place uh, above a vet clinic working the 24-hour emergency vet clinic hours and we were seeing each other like every day because he was coming out to the place and Essentially, after two months, I decided, you know, maybe I'm going to settle in London. I'm going to find an apartment. I'll take on a permanent position in a vet clinic. And I communicated that to him. uh, And he'd said, oh, you know, in the meantime, while you're looking for an apartment, why don't you move in temporarily? And, you know, two months in, not a great idea, lesson learned. But I was like, okay, well, that would be good to sort of have somewhere to stay while i'm, you know, adjusting to a permanent job and i can kind of use that time to find a new place. <clears throat> and you know, after that, you know, a few weeks of living together, there was a really significant change in his behavior. He started being very controlling and sort of you know, checking on me constantly when i was at work and you know, saying he was going to pick me up from work, catching the bus to collect me checking on what things I've purchased, going through the bin, like all these kind of behaviors where I was just like, what is going on? Like starting to get really uncomfortable. Um, And in my mind, I was already sort of thinking, okay, this doesn't feel right. My gut was telling me like, this isn't right. I feel feel like it's gonna escalate. Um, But unfortunately, simultaneously, I was experiencing some health concerns some symptoms of something, that I wanted to go and get checked out. And essentially I went and got an ultrasound and found out I had these two large tumors in my uterus. And at that stage, they weren't aware if they were cancerous or not. Um, and they had essentially said like, they'll do a blood test to check that, but it couldn't be conclusive necessarily. Uh, and due to the nature of the size of them and all of that, they had said, we need to get you into surgery pretty quickly to. <clears throat> whip them out um and you know that's obviously a really scary thing to to hear because you mm-hmm. think oh my god i'm too young for this what's going on
0: how old were you at the time
1: 30 Okay, about 30 yeah and yeah so essentially i went back to the house where he was and i told him what was happening and you know then we had to find a surgeon and the nhs system were very you know like that's supposed to be their free healthcare, but it's It doesn't work like that. You know, if you have something even that's an emergency or urgent, you still go on a waiting list for months and months and months. And these tumours had developed very quickly. So my choice was then to have to pay privately to get them removed. And, you know, we looked into that. It was £9,000. So, you know, obviously being a very privileged, fortunate person, I was lucky enough to have family sort of help with that. But all the while, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I'm like, I have nowhere else to live. I'm stuck here with this relationship, which is feeling really unsafe. But I kind of decided in that moment, okay, just get through the surgery. Just get through this and then, you know, make your plan to sort of get out of here. Um, So the surgery came up in December. And so we've been living together for a couple of months by that point. And yeah, the surgery came up. I had the surgery in a private hospital. A few days after the surgery, they released me despite the fact I was saying, look, I'm not doing well, something's not right, I don't feel, um, you know, like I was swollen and like I had a temperature and all this stuff, but they were really trying to just push me out the door. And within about 12 hours of being released home, back to where we were living, I uh, was in septic shock. Went into septic shock. Um, was sort of in and out of consciousness. Dan had to cu- um, had to call an ambulance and uh, get me taken off to the public hospital because that's where they would do emergency surgeries. Mm-hmm. And they took me off there. By this stage, it was um, Christmas Eve. All oh, right. <laughs> so um, obviously chaos. You yeah. know, the hospital was just absolutely inundated. And they kind of just like left me there, you know, like I don't blame the NHS. They just so overwhelmed, but left me there just sort of, you know, festering, getting worse and worse and worse. And Were you to, on a bed in the in the hallway? I was on a bed in like a side room, which just like didn't have proper equipment to sort of do anything. But they whacked me on a drip, like a IV fluids, and um, gave me some pain relief and kind of just left me there. But obviously I deteriorated so much that they ultimately like came in, rushed in and said like the doctor from the private hospital, we've informed him, he's coming. And, you know, anyway, it ended up that I ended up having surgery early morning on Christmas Day um, because they said, listen, there's something wrong, there might be a perforation or a hole from the surgery and we need to go in and investigate. So we're going to have to cut you all the way up from, you know, pubic to sort of up past my belly button um, and then do an emergency lapro, laparotomy, and I'd already had the scar that looks like a cesarean scar from the surgery a few days earlier, so it was like a big T. Uh, and then you know I woke up in emergency department, and they said, yeah, there was a hole. There was they found a hole. They couldn't explain why, but you know I was already at this point so ill from the the sept you know being septic is it? Yeah. Um that. I then was sort of stuck in hospital for like over a month, um, in intensive care for a few weeks and then sort of in the ward, um, just on antibiotics, kind of doing CT scan, like trying to take fluid out it was just, it was horrendous. Mm -hmm. And all the while, you know, um, Dan is there sitting by my side kind of, you know, so concerned because he's so, you know, in love. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just felt it just couldn't have been a worse time. you I know. Mean, I was just so overwhelmed by the being sick, but also the pressure of having to sort of have this person there that I felt so uncomfortable with. And I didn't have any family in London, um, except of course, my, my mother was called on the evening of the surgery. Uh, and they said, listen, you should probably get over here because things aren't looking very good. Um, she's very ill and you know, we don't know how things are going to go. So mum a few days later popped on a plane and came over. Um, but I hadn't really forewarned her about how I was feeling about the relationship. So it was just so uncomfortable. Um and yet ultimately once I was sort of recovered enough, they they let me go back to the house that we were sharing. And I was just so weak. I'd lost 10 kilos in the space of a month, and I was already very slim at the time. So I was just very weak, had this, you know, horrible um the scars, the the scar had gotten infected. So I was just in dire straits, you know, not feeling good and realised at that time, like, I am not well enough to be able to escape this person. I can't even pack a suitcase or get down the stairs. Um, So I had to just sort of wait it out for, for a few weeks until I was well enough to go. And, you know, this whole time it was I was having conversations that were trying to sort of lead to that but then pulling back because he was sort of threatening suicide and saying all sorts of like, um, you know, threatening things to me. So so, <clears throat> to so you were no, trying to
0: break up with him or were you trying to have space from him?
1: Yeah, space. Yeah. Because I wasn't, if I'd said break up, I, I knew in my sort of bones that it was going to, like, be an extreme reaction. Yeah. So I was just sort of saying, like, give me some space. I just need to recover a bit. And, like, I tried to sleep in the downstairs room because it was like a house and the roommate was away. And I tried to sleep in the downstairs room and... I locked the door and he would sleep outside the door on the floor and, like, it it was just awful. And my mum had gone home by this point. Um, but, you know, like every day I was trying to go for little walks outside to get my strength up and at the point that I was able to get um, down to the corner shop, which was, like, 500 metres away, I was like, okay, I'm ready, I can, I can escape. And I, you know, while he was at work one day, I sort of packed everything up pushed the suitcase down the stairs and, um, called a, called a taxi and he showed up back at the house. So, you know, it all sort of makes sense a bit later, but he showed up and was like, you're leaving what's happening. And I sort of was halfway at the door. The taxi was there. And I just sort of like pulled my stuff out. He was like grabbing at my bag and, I got in the taxi and he sort of chased the taxi and I took myself off to a hotel that I'd booked. There was a time frame between the suitcase being pushed down the stairs and waiting for the taxi where he went into the kitchen and got a knife. Oh, Jesus. Like a big knife and held it against his own stomach and put the handle against the, the kitchen bench and threatened to push himself onto the knife and he was shaking and like red as a beetroot from anger from anger and crying hysterical but he was pushing himself on this knife oh, but again this is where it's like this this threats and it's it's such a successful um, it's such a successful tactic mm. of someone who is trying to gain control boss. of so, you yeah because they're threatening to hurt themselves so that you will disregard your decision to leave and you'll then have to look after them and take care and, and i i knew that intellectually that he wasn't going to go through with that he was like mm-hmm. i can never know that but mm-hmm. you know that was my instinct but he was using that to try and trap me there like holding this knife against his stomach and also, he's holding a knife.
0: Yeah. That's enough. At that phone.
1: level of oh, Jesus. you know, um, heightened emotion. Mm-hmm. And I'm just standing there going, Okay, put the knife down. You're not gonna hurt yourself. I'm gonna leave now. The taxi's here. I'm you're not gonna hurt yourself. And then just like running out the door with my suitcase and him following after the taxi. But yeah, and you know, that evening I was really like uh, just trying to get my thoughts together, like what's the next move? I'm going to have to find somewhere to stay temporarily um, until I had a trip to Australia coming up. Like a couple of weeks later, I knew I had this trip to Australia. So I was sort of like, I just got to find somewhere until then.
0: He wasn't planning to come on this trip with you. No, Yeah. no. God.
1: Um, and yeah, so I stayed in this hotel and that first evening I was in this tiny little cheap room and I got photos of the outside of the hotel. From him saying, "I feel so close to you," and you know, uh, "Is my princess here?" All this stuff, and I oh, was I just got chills. Yeah, and I was like freaking out, and I um, and this was all along with messages like, you know, "I'm going to kill myself." Mm-hmm. You've done this to me. I'm trying to contact the surgeon that you had to do your surgery to give me drug like Valium and just like completely crazy stuff and so obviously i had a very restless night and the next day i went through my stuff to sort of just check everything and my passport was missing and i realized that he'd taken it when i was about to leave because i knew i packed it it was the first thing i thought of like i'm going to australia in a few. i got to get the passport and yeah so when i realized the passport was gone i sort of texted him and said listen i need the passport back like you have to give it to me or just leave it somewhere and I'll go collect it or whatever. And he was writing back just, you know, the same kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that evening again, I got photos from inside a hotel room in the same hotel. And I was just so panicked and I called the police and said, listen, I'm just calling for advice. I didn't call the emergency number. I just called the advice line and said, this is the situation. He has my passport. He keeps threatening suicide, and I'm really concerned for myself, but also for him. Because like at this point, you like I'm an empathetic person, and I still had all these conflicted feelings around like guilt and sure, you know, yeah, and yeah. and sort of worry, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I was you know definitely not interested in this person anymore. And the police said yeah, we can't really just, like, give you advice, actually. We have to take that seriously and we're going to have to go check on him. And I said, yeah, well, the passport's there. And they said, okay, well, then we really need to go. And so the next morning um, I went down to the front desk and said, has um, this person checked out? Uh, And they said, yeah, he checked out earlier. And so the police were calling him saying, mate, we know you've got the passport meet us at the house and we're going to bring Sophie over and you can hand the passport over and, you know, you're obviously not going to contact her again. And he was hanging up on the police repetitively. But they weren't weren't interested in arresting him at this point. It was more just like trying to mitigate the situation, just being like, okay, give her the passport back and leave her alone. Mm -hmm. So, But he just kept hanging up on them and they realised he wasn't at the house but he had taken the passport with him in case I'd gone back to the house to try and get it. And so the police ended up finally convincing him to come back to the house. So we went. I went in the police car with the police, went there and sort of just tried to keep calm. And they they were quite lovely, actually, these police, fortunately. And they were, you know, talking to him and saying, you need to give the passport back and you've got to leave her alone. And he was saying to them, like, and you're not going to offer me help. I'm going to knock myself off and all this sort of stuff. And... Essentially, they just said, like, you know, go to the emergency room if you're that concerned for yourself, and we took off. Um, And I sort of, you know, as kindly as I could said, like, Dan, please, just, like, let it go. I know this is very difficult, but it's done. And so I left, and within hours the texts and the stuff all starts again, and it's just, you know, I was responding for a time, and then I was just sort of leaving it, but it was just barrages of, Non stop text messaging and then you know days went past I change hotels and I had appointments follow-up appointments for the surgery and then I get photos of the hospital so he's right there somewhere watching me at the appointment and I'm just like at a loss I don't know where he is I don't like I'm trying to go to these appointments and I'm just like f- like I'm also so confused how does he know where I am all the time yeah. um But, you know, I I tried to just keep my head down and I would go to movies and spend like a few hours in a cinema because I just thought like at least in there I feel like, you know, I'm not out in the open. Mm. Um, Yeah, and so essentially I knew like a couple of weeks later this is all just going on but I'm just sort of turning my phone off and trying to just get on with stuff. And the trip comes up to Australia. So I go to the airport and he's at the airport and he like I come out of the bathroom and he's literally standing outside the bathroom at the checkout desk.
0: Oh, <laughs> my God.
1: And, you know, I'm still in this sort of phase where I'm like not getting furious at him because I'm just sort of like trying to figure out how to deal. And so I said, listen, Dan, just leave me alone. I'm going to go through the gates now. Don't like follow me. This is like I'm not going to report it but just – just go, I'm going. And I walked through the departure gates because it was right close to where we were. And I got on the plane and just burst into tears because I was so relieved. Like, I was just like, I'm on a plane now. I'm, I'm safe for the time being. And I got to Australia and, you know, obviously it was, it was so amazing to see my family, all my siblings and, you know, my dad and my mom and everyone, and be able to just sort of
0: be free of him. Breathe and,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and it was summer so I was sort of enjoying my time there. And then um, one day I was walking to the little the little sort of beach in my town because there's like a little beach. You can sort of walk quite a distance to get to this little beach. And as I'm walking along this path, he's walking towards me. Oh,
0: my God. You're fucking kidding. I'm not kidding. Oh, my God. The chills yeah. have just come over me. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. So
1: he's, he's walking towards me along the path. And, you know, I, I my response was kind of crazy because you don't really know how you're going to react in that kind of situation because it's just so bizarre, yeah. you know. It's this out-of-body experience and I started laughing and it was, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't happy to see him but it was just this kind of uh, like awkward laughing that I couldn't help and he took it as a sign of like, oh, she's happy to see me and... I just said no no you walk that direction I walk this direction and don't talk to me ever again or I'm going to call the police like this is like how are you even what is going on here and I just sort of like you know breathing hard walking towards the beach and just knowing he's behind me and he was saying like oh you look when we sort of stood in front of each other and I was there just sort of like absolutely baffled he's like oh you look so thin I want to take care of you and all this. And I was like, just walk the other direction. Don't talk to me. And I walked to the beach and called my mom and said, look, come pick me up. This has just happened. Um,
0: Were you yeah. crying? Were you, you must have been no, terrified. No, I was oh, just no?
1: in shock. Jesus. Like I'm good at dissociating. So okay. even in the moment of stuff, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm able to just sort of go into autopilot okay, as such. So I just sort of, carried on and um yeah mum took me home and I told the family because I was staying with my mum at the time and you know it was we were all just trying to figure out okay well you're just not going to go anywhere by yourself right now and you know I went down to the police station and said this has happened because um, it wasn't like a proper report yet like I had just said like listen this person that I split up with and there's been incidences, you know, prior they've showed up here in Australia and found me and I'm just, I don't know what to do. And they'd said like, just turn your locations off. Obviously he's somehow seeing like whether it's through and I found out he was on my Facebook. So he'd been going through the Facebook and seeing like, that's what I thought initially. It must've just been from the Facebook Mm -hmm. messages that I'd been sending to friends and stuff. But that's all I could really figure he, out. Like, how
0: did he tap into your account? You mean, or he was checking where you may have checked in in your
1: passport? Well, I found out later that, of course, he was logged into my Apple ID. So months later, when I was at the police station again, they had found that he had logged in, even when we were together months ago, and had been tracking my phone all that time. You know, and it, it like, but just to keep in terms of the timeline, that that happened later. So months of this stalking stuff happened where I was still unaware of the tracking. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I returned, you know, I, I realized um, that he had gone home because he had posted something on Instagram about being back in London. And I thought, okay, he's back in London. Maybe he's finally, you know, got over this situation and realized how nuts it was. Um, and then obviously I had to go back to London cause you know, I was having to go back to my job that I had got and yeah, so I flew back and immediately was like, I was staying at Airbnb and I was looking for a new, um, apartment with roommates and I, you know, this was years ago, but I kind of thought I looked up like living with, I found a place that was like five dudes. Like five young guys living together and I was like okay that sounds good for me Mm -hmm. because you know assuming they're all nice people I'll feel a bit more protection Mm -hmm. and you know despite all you know gender sort of conversations and like not needing that um that was where my mind was at that point and just feeling like okay that might be a safety and to be honest it it really did make me feel quite safe because they were quite protective of me when I told them the situation so you
0: moved into that apartment
1: yeah, I did after. But but first of all, I was in this Airbnb and, you know, the emails and stuff started again and the kind of, you know, I can see you, I know where you are and, like, just, you know, um, creepy stuff. But I was kind of just ignoring it, like, and just sort of getting on with stuff. And then I found this apartment. I went to visit them. Um, terrible place. You know what London's like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a dilapidated shit house, But, like, you know, these... Guys were lovely and I thought, okay, this will do for now, at least for, you know, six months or so. And, you know, so I moved in there and I went back to work. I, you know, got ready to go back to work on my first day back. Went up the street, got on my bus, had my headphones in and within like five minutes I was aware of someone who sat down next to me on the upstairs part of the bus, you know, the Mm double-decker bus. And I turned to my right and it was him And I just felt the blood drain from my body. It was, I just lost it. This was the first time I'd gotten angry. Mm -hmm. Like I just got up and was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And I pushed past him, got into the gang, like the hallway thing, ran down there, went down the stairs and I was like yelling, like help. Like I need to get off this bus. Like I just lost it. And was he ran down the stairs and was trying to like hug me and trying to get me. And I was like, help, help. And like, no one was helping me. I mean, I don't know what they would do, but like this very, you know, I think sometimes in London, people are kind of a bit more reserved about stuff and they, you know, don't want to be in anyone's business. And I, I understand that to a degree, but the bus stopped and I basically said, get off the bus, you get off the bus. And everyone was looking at at this point. So he obviously did feel like, you know, pressured enough that it was so awkward that he got off the bus. And I then just like sat on the bus kind of freaking out and just breathing like heavily. And I got to work, got off the bus and like I couldn't go into work yet. I just sat on the curb and just like tried to get my breathing regular. I called the police and said, listen, I think I really need to make a report now. It's been, this is what's happened. It's been months now. I really need some help with this situation. And, you know, you you kind of have in your mind that they'll just show up in cop cars and it'll all happen like that, but it doesn't. They were like, all right, well, after you finish your shift, come visit us at the police station and we'll take your details. And, you know, I went into work looking like so shell-shocked and my work, this was the permanent position, they had known what had happened because I'd started working there when I was living with him and they knew about me getting sick. And so wasn't a great start to that mm-hmm. career, obviously. Like, hi, I'm the new veterinary nurse here. And then within a couple of months, uh, i got to go off and have surgery. That went, I you know, know pear-shaped. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, i got to recover for weeks, went off to Australia, came back. So they were just sort of like, who is this chaotic, you know, mess but I came back to work um and that day was just you know I was kind of overwhelmed but just got on with it and then obviously after work I went off to the police station and I gave my report and said everything said everything to them about what had happened and they basically said okay well we're gonna have to go and pick him up like and it was late at night by this point I'd been there for hours giving this report and showing them messages and kind of just going through everything in the Australia stuff. And they said, okay, we're going to go pick him up. So they went and, you know, I went home and they went and collected him and they kept him um, for two nights because they usually keep them one night and they do like a magistrate court hearing the next day. But he was acting so erratic and, you know, being so aggressive and that they kept him two nights. But the police called me and said, listen, he's admitted to everything which means that we're going to have the magistrate court hearing in the morning you don't actually have to attend because he's admitted it you just have to write a statement like a victim statement so I wrote out this thing and you know in hindsight it was this it was this kind of the letter if I go back and read it now I was so empathetic towards him like just saying like this is what's happened I feel like he's just having some kind of you know, episode, and he's doing all these things. But I don't think he's a terrible person. But this is obviously incredibly uncomfortable for me. And, you know, he experienced me going through all of this life threatening stuff with my surgery. So maybe, like, please don't just like throw the book at him. But like, obviously, something needs to happen to, you know, reprimand him and stop this from continuing. And, you know, I still am that person that that feels that way because, you know, there could be complex mental health issues going on or, you know, I don't know. But essentially I wrote this thing this with all the kind of details of what had happened. An
0: impact statement. An impact
1: statement. Not... Um, but also sort of details of like small details of what had happened. But they had all the police reports there. So obviously during that they go through it all and they charge him with stalking. He gets... Um, four months, uh, with a ankle bracelet and pays a fine and I get a restraining order. So they called me and said, this is the result of that. And I kind of, you know, I breathed a sigh of relief, but I also just had this feeling like this is not the end of the situation. I just feel, I know it's not. You felt it in your gut that gut, that this was not the end. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, I, I started like getting comfortable. Like, okay, I I feel like things are maybe returning to normal. I hadn't had messages or emails or anything. And then um, maybe a few weeks after that, I was on the bus again. And I got off the bus at my stop. And he was in jogging clothes running past the bus stop. And then just like stopped and started stretching near the bus stop. Didn't talk to me to try and find a loophole in the restraining order, but just stared at me from a distance. And I honestly just was so resigned at this point. I wasn't scared at that point. I was just like, fuck off, Mm -hmm. you know, like I was just exhausted. I didn't call the police. I just sort of let it go. And then another couple of weeks went by and I heard weird rustling outside my window at the new apartment and sort of lights went on and I didn't ever, like, I didn't see him. But when I called the police about something else related, there was messages and other stuff started happening, they called him up, they spoke to him, and somehow they got him to admit that he had gone to my new apartment, gone into the backyard and slept in the backyard.
0: Oh, my fucking God, this guy's
1: mental. (laughs) So I was really you know, I was getting to the point where I was like, I'm throwing my arms up here. The police were, they were quite good and they, they did as much as they could, I guess, in terms of their policies, but it's a bigger up, it's a higher up issue, you know, like it's years ago, they didn't even have laws to protect for stalking and stuff. So it has improved, but at the end of the day, when I went to them and said, look, this stuff is continuing and the risk of breaking the restraining order as it's listed on the document is five years imprisonment. So the fact that this person is still risking the repercussions of that tells me that, like, that's not stopping him. Like, he's gone beyond the point of caring. Mm-hmm. He's In his mind, he's probably, like, taking up to prison. I don't mm-hmm. care. And the police said, okay, at this point, it's been like months and months and months and there's been some moments of it stopping but it hasn't stopped enough for us to think that you're in the safe zone and statistically you're now at risk that the next move would be like violence. Oh, Jesus. And they said like you're just in that bracket. And the policeman, like this, one of the policemen was just sitting in the, um, in the station talking to me and he said, I think you should just go. Just go home. Go, you, just get out of here. Like, I gave him my phone and just threw my hands up and said, how is he finding me? How does he know when my work schedule is? Because I was a vet. It changed mm-hmm. the times I started work. And he was like, your phone, your phone <laughs> is connected to his, like he's logged into Apple ID. So he's been able to see you all these months. Oh, the beach so- in Australia, oh. the hotel, the Airbnb, the hospital, the all of it he'd known through this. And I just felt a bit like an idiot at that point, like, you know, in that conversation with the police then. like, And at this point, I was like, I don't want to go back to Australia. I moved over to Europe to live the life that I wanted to. You know, I love Australia. I love all my family and friends there. But they're all, you know, they're all kind of moved on with their lives into different stages. They were married with kids and I wasn't on that path yeah but also you know you
0: chose to be in london you wanted to to go why should you
1: leave why can't he just go to jail exactly and i just decided like in that moment i said i was like well i'm not going back to australia like i'm not letting him do this but i feel like i need to go somewhere else and i started like just having the seed in my mind of like how can i still maintain this lifestyle that i want which is kind of more you know free woman in her 30s doing what she wants but not like because i just didn't have big goals of you know getting married and having kids it just Mm -hmm. that changed after my surgery Mm -hmm. like i think i had that urge before but with all the surgery and the damage it looked pretty unlikely i could have kids anyway so i just sort of got my mind around that and was like no i'm not going back to australia because i i don't want to feel like a you know square peg in a round hole and and then, you know, I went away from this meeting and went back to the apartment was thinking about it. And I, I was just trying to wrap my brain, like, where can I go in Europe? You know, that I could still like work and live and sort of have that lifestyle, but just sort of have that distance. And I went out with a friend one night, a couple of friends for drinks, and I was sitting there and one of the guys that was there, this, this friend of a friend, was visiting from Berlin and he goes back and forth from Berlin to London because he was a freelance um, graphic designer. And I'd said to him, you know, given him sort of a a report about what had been going on because, you know, I'd just been telling this story about what had happened. And he said, you know, I'm thinking of moving to London permanently to do graphic design and my apartment in Berlin is, you know, i got to find a new tenant for that. And it just all sort of fell into place and I was like, right, you know, I am a pretty um, person who makes rash <laughs> decisions sometimes, mm-hmm. but like I just said, okay, well, that's it then. I'm going to Berlin. Wow. And a week later I called work, organized a meeting, had to resign. That was another whole thing that was so sad is that, you know, I've been a veterinary nurse for 10 years. I loved that job. I love working with animals and really suited my ADHD brain, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, um, that kind of physical work. But I went in and resigned and said, this is what's happening. I'm just going to have to go. And, like, that's my next move. I booked a ticket. I told my flatmates. They, of course, also understood and let me off the lease straight away, which was very kind of Mm -hmm. them. And, yeah, I think it was maybe a week and a half later, I landed in um, Stuttgart because I had cousins there that I went to visit and spent a couple of weeks there researching jobs. I found some job interviews, did some online interviews, went to Berlin, got a job within the first week. Amazing. In a little startup company. Um, terrible company, <laughs> but that's a different story. Uh, but, you know, it was a good start. I got the apartment. I stayed in. Um, a temporary sort of VG place until the apartment was ready here and then in this area Friedrichshain and then I moved um, into the new flat and just started from scratch but then obviously when I moved I got a new phone I deleted my LinkedIn I got rid of my Facebook got rid of my Instagram changed my email changed just completely pressed reset on things because I thought that's the only way I'm going to like get How away from me. this situation. Yeah. And sort of the first few months here, you know, I was obviously, I kind of went into this dissociation mood. I just went out and partied. I went crazy and made friends and just to kind of push away that, that like trauma that I'd experienced. Um, and eventually I ended up, you know, I, I had a boyfriend, I met a boy and it was a really nice Kind of experience because he was sort of the polar opposite. Like, just gave me lots of space and was—he was a good party buddy. And it didn't end up working out long term because he was um, a party guy. <laughs> he was a party guy, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, we sort of stayed friends, and I really—he kind of helped me through that stage, despite the fact that I, you know, went a bit hard with the partying. But then, sort of after we we ended things. um the the hit the fan in terms of the repercussions of everything that had happened i started you know experiencing symptoms of like ptsd and depression and anxiety which was not new to me Mm. depression anxiety and you know other sorts of mental health concerns but this ptsd stuff was really new you know i would be walking down the street and i saw someone that was even vaguely the same height as him and i would like feel like i was going to drop on the floor i was like having these wow. panic moments where my vision would go blurry and I would just like, yeah, it was just like, you feel like you were dying. And it just kept like sort of happening to the point where I was like, you know, I need to really go and address this. And I, and I found a therapist and, you know, spent quite a lot of time going there talking about the situation and, and actually, you know, going off to a psychiatrist and getting on some medication and, you know, no shame in the medication game sure, if you need yeah. that to help you. Um, and it really has sort of helped me with that. But, you know, like years down the track now, I'm not afraid anymore. You know, I've I've established great friendships here now. I've got a sort of financially and career-wise and health-wise, I'm so much, you know, further along and better than I was. And you know, at the end of the day, I'm now in a position in my life where I, I don't know what the, you know, sliding doors moment would have been mm-hmm. if I had never met this person and this hadn't happened, like, probably would have been a good life too. But I, I think I have to package it in this way of being grateful and sort of like, happy that it, it turned out this way that I'm in Berlin, I have now got a lovely partner that I live with. We've got an adopted dog and a cat. And we, you know, we have a great life together. And I, yeah, I feel really grateful for that. And, you know, it, it, it dawns on me um, how lucky I am compared to people, you know, like I realise I've got white privilege. I know I'm a privileged person. I thought to myself, like, imagine if this was someone who wasn't as fortunate as me in terms of, like, what life has provided you. And all that stuff happened. You didn't have the financial support from your family you didn't have access to sort of healthcare. You didn't have money to get yourself established somewhere else mm-hmm. or education mm-hmm. to get yourself a job. Like I could have ended up on the streets, mm-hmm. you know. I could have ended up dead. There were yeah. so many other avenues that it could have gone down if I hadn't had sort of the the things that I've been um, lucky enough to have. Um, but, yeah, I think... It's it's something that I can kind of talk about um, as if it's someone else now, Mm, (laughs) you know. Like the early days when I talked about this with people, I would get upset, and and now I just kind of, you know, it just feels like this story that sort of led me somewhere. But it's not like it doesn't define me anymore. Like it's amazing how like
0: these traumatic things that happen to us. Mm. They're, they're shit like i mean i've had yeah. an abusive boyfriend as well um and i always thought why why did it happen to me why is it yeah. happening but i grew so much from it yeah you know i'm stronger now i'm, I'm no fool to to men or to, to bad boys and things yeah and, and i know what science to look out for with people so yeah and it's brought me to a great place mentally mm. and just appreciation of like being by myself mm. and that i don't you know I had low self-esteem now I don't anymore mm. and I you, you grow from pain essentially oh 100 know and if you can look on life mm. like that I mean it's 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 not easy what you went through that sounds extremely traumatic and the fact it's interesting that you kind of weren't <laughs> dealing with it mm. uh you know you were like when you saw him walking down the beach and you laughed it's interesting that it was only when you moved to Berlin that then it really hit you the post oh. stress of it all you know it yeah. just shows you that you will bubble over at some point you can't keep that in forever
1: oh and it bubbled over yeah. i mean you know mentioning the part about sort of when i had to go see therapy because of the ptsd i then had to have i ended up having to have a, a follow-up surgery because there was like a hernia where the emergency surgery had been and i had this major surgery but i was so anxious and depressed and all this stuff had sort of I had just been sort of confronted with my trauma and essentially the, the the outcome of that was that I developed alopecia areata and I lost every hair on my head and all of my body except my pubic hair, which was like the real cruel thing. <laughs> I was like, Are you fucking kidding me. <laughs> every hair on my body. And, you know, like that was crazy in your 30s to develop like full alopecia and it was when I spoke to the doctors about it, they said, you're just at your the end of your rope. This is like completely stress-induced. Your body is literally just like working on keeping you safe and yeah. it's throwing out anything it doesn't need, like your hair. And obviously, that was in itself crazy. Like I spent a couple of years like having to go through steroid injections in my head to get my hair to grow back. Oh, really? You know, trying to get comfortable with being bald, which is not an easy thing as a woman you know Mm -hmm. you're so influenced by your attractiveness being Mm -hmm. the most important thing about you which of course we know it isn't but you know you have to fight with all those internalized things that Mm -hmm. you've learned in your Mm -hmm. life through media and stuff but I had to get to terms with myself and actually again that was the first like that experience was like the first time I realized how what an impact this whole situation it had on me because I looked in the mirror and it was the first time I'd seen the trauma on me yeah you know yeah. like on my I mean obviously the scars on my stomach but like just the stress of it because you're looking at your face and you've got no hair and you're just like okay stop running away from it stop yeah. partying stop trying to like fill that hole with other stuff distracting yourself like you I'm need to, to face, music. face the music yeah. and, and deal with this other part that I didn't mention, it's so hard to, like, get yeah, it on. Yeah. <laughs> it was just mm-hmm. so much. But um, after the um, after the trip in Australia and when all of that sort of stuff came to a head and I was, you know, back at the clinic and working at the vet clinic at that time back in London, um, I went to work one day and the receptionist at the vet clinic was like, are you okay? What are you doing here? Have you not seen?" And I was like, what is she talking about? and she gets the newspaper out and it's my face oh, on the front of the newspaper, like Daily Mail, all of this, you know, like rag, mail, like crappy newspaper things, My that they had obviously taken from my Facebook and Instagram, just like took photos from there, photos of him that they'd taken outside the courthouse and the whole article where it referenced all of my police report that was set in the court case, my um, victim statement, Everything was in there and I was like, what is is going on? How did they – what's going on? And I called the police and said, I am – like when this receptionist gave it to me, I dropped on the floor. I literally – like my legs just turned to jelly because I was just – it was so crazy. But when I called the police, they were like, ah, well, there's court reporters. We should have told you, but they sit in the magistrate court. And if they find the story, you know, titillating, they just – run with it they take all oh the information God. like i just couldn't even believe that was legal yeah. but in london that's they can do
0: that and they go onto your facebook take your photos they, your yeah, but they,
1: that's, it's, that's it's a to, lesson learned yeah. for your listeners nothing on your instagram and facebook is your property yeah
0: yeah it's property because they facebook. can
1: just take those photos yeah. and i mean the irony of that is that these newspaper publications are like this poor girl stalked across to australia all this stuff and i was like are you think you're helping me I'm a victim of stalking and you're posting my face all over the newspaper and, like, they mention my name, my... Full um, name as well. No, Full not name. their last name, my name, age, where I work. For fuck's sake. And I was like, are you crazy? Fast forwarding to, to sort of being um, in Berlin and just, like, looking back at that and going, oh, my God, I just can't believe that that went through but like that was something quite confronting because obviously it that article made its way all the way to australia i had friends you know you've got like ambulance chases like Uh (laughs) obviously my good friends were concerned and reaching out to me and saying why the hell is your face all over the paper here with all this stuff and i was like i felt so embarrassed because i was like i didn't do it Mm. you know because you get this like i didn't i'm i didn't call and make some you know interview to to do all of that and put all that information in there i mean now i'm doing it (laughs) you know there's so much distance from it and and, i have control you know Mm -hmm. i'd like to be able to control my Mm -hmm. from my perspective um but yeah it had made it all the way out there but i had people like i went to primary school with reaching out to me that i hadn't spoken to in decades and you know but that that whole thing just sort of felt like a dream But, yeah, I mean, I like I said, my hair's back. <laughs> I have a new found kind of appreciation for life, and that sounds so fucking corny. No, but fuck it's
0: that. Bit, it's true. Sorry, you have to go through the worst to come out on, on, yeah. on the other side and, and realize yeah. what you have and what
1: to appreciate. But the other thing is like a lack, lack of vanity. I got so much better at sort of, okay, you know what? Your appearance is just one fucking thing. And if I had any chance of sort of going forward and meeting someone, because that was what I wanted, I wanted to find someone eventually to sort of have a life with. And I was like, you need to like obviously look out for red flags and stuff and also like work on your self-confidence. I had bad self-esteem as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes that leads us to making poor decisions and not trusting our gut because we don't think we necessarily deserve better, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's such a toxic Sort of thing that ends up happening is that you end up in these situations. Well, that's definitely a... not victim blame here because mm-hmm. that is influenced from the way we're brought up, the things that we see, the you know, the horrible messages that we've received growing up about appearance, and all that kind of stuff contributes to that. But I now just have a different relationship with my appearance. You know, I was bald, I was. Too thin, I was sick, I was all these things, I've been through all these stages. And I couldn't give a fuck now. Like I, you know, I like to wear makeup in a certain way because it it's my choice. It's mm-hmm. I it like to feel, feel good. It makes me yeah. feel good. Um and any men work? out there who say to me, like, you know, but I prefer like you look so good without makeup or, I'm like, Oh, I didn't realise it was about what you wanted, you know? Sorry, oh yeah, I forgot. If I was doing it for you, then um why would that make sense since you don't like it? <laughs> and that's exactly how we were brought up, right? It was almost, you know, that, that we
0: are the object for men to desire. Yeah. And that we should be pleasing them. And that's something that I learned as well, like, because I had been in a toxic mm. relationship, also yeah. gaslighting from the very start, things like that. Gaslighting yeah. is huge. And yeah, you know, he would say comments to me as well, like, oh, you're wearing too much makeup. And I'm like, oh, sorry. Should I just not fucking wear makeup? Because right. you say I shouldn't. Yeah. You know?
1: But they're also so perplexed that it's not for them.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah like,
1: like that. it's not you're like no like i'm wearing pink fucking eyeshadow and you know like blue eyeliner and i know no one fucking likes that but like i'll like it yeah. <laughs>
0: like, i okay. like it in that moment but these these are things that you learn as yeah. you grow up right i yeah. mean like i back in the day i, I did start dyeing my hair blonde because the next boyfriend said to me you're uh, yeah. point, you were hot oh, i've
1: hair. been there yeah doing things i've certainly come from a perspective of that but <sighs> i've evolved yeah exactly for being about what i what i like now but i mean you know we're in
0: our 30s it's almost like i mean it's never too late but it just seems so late that in your 30s it's like Mm. oh wait uh my looks are about how i feel not about how men see me no absolutely about gaslighting um, Mm. because i was gaslighted in this toxic relationship Mm. um what were the signs of gaslighting that we could mention
1: Oh, just you know, certain ones about like the financial stuff. So when we were living together, um, you know, obviously early on, he started saying like, "Yeah, but you don't, you don't need new things. Like, why are you like buying new stuff you don't need? That or you're not good with your finances, or you're not good with um, like taking care of yourself, and the, and just like little things where I'd be like, "Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. I'm." I'm able to take care of myself. I know when I need something new. But he'd say it enough times probably that then
0: you start questioning me. It started
1: questioning me Mm -hmm. and – or just, you know, he'd say like, yeah, you're going out too late with your friends. You clearly – like you've lost control. Like this was in the time before I was sick. But, you know, he'd be like, why are you coming home so late and just blowing up my phone and being like, you've seriously – obviously you've got a problem if you're staying out that late and you're not contacting me. To let me know where you are, that's so disrespectful. Like thing. And I was like, is, that, is it disrespectful that I'm able to go out with my friends? Was he also sometimes, because this was similar with me mm. and my
0: ex-boyfriend, he would get really pissed off if I left him alone. He's like, oh, you're out with your friends,
1: why didn't you invite me? And all of this kind of thing. And Yeah, you know, but that's exactly the yeah. gaslighting, because I'd mm-hmm. say, well, come then. Mm-hmm. And then if he did come, he'd sit there watching everyone, any conversation I had with anyone, didn't matter if it was, you know, a, a woman or a man or, you know, whoever, he was jealous of that communication. Yeah. And I always just felt like he was on my shoulder watching what I did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was it was just the control. Whether he was there or not, he needed to have some line of communication with me. And, you and know, the, isn't it awful? Yeah.
0: Because your ex-boyfriend and my ex-boyfriend both have their own issues. Right, oh, for sure. And then they fucking projected them onto yep. us and then mm-hmm. we had to suffer.
1: Oh, you know? I, mean, I mean, you definite. suffered
0: so fucking much, yeah. even years after, Yeah, you know, and it's like, fuck that shit, you know, yeah. because, and then for me, it was about three years after, it was only that I'd realised that I was in that abusive relationship and I just started to think, well, fuck you, man. Like, really? I, you know, I had the low self-esteem because of him and all of these other shitty things going on inside me because this man had been abandoned when he was a child by his parents at different times in his life. So he was massively insecure. Oh, and how that
1: manifests itself. Right, Right. exactly. But then,
0: you know, we had to deal with it. And then we take that on in our own lives. And that affects Mm. our day-to-day lives. And it used to. It doesn't anymore. But, you know, because I'm bringing up the book a lot um, and having this podcast that I talk about his memory and the experience that i had with him he's still living in my brain and i fucking hate him yeah you know what i mean i still haven't seen him like he still lives living rent free as the kids (laughs) say like it doesn't affect me but still he'll pop into my head sometimes and i'm like fuck off mate don't need you in there
1: you know someone taught me a really good trick with that actually i say someone i should say my therapist (laughs) um dealing with sort of intrusive thoughts or like trying to help you manage when you just can't get your brain off a topic that's you know that's making you feel terrible mm-hmm. or you're in that sort of thought loop is to let it in mm-hmm. and just say okay come on in and take a seat in my brain I don't mm-hmm. care just invite them in because it's like if someone says to you don't think about ice cream don't think about ice cream don't mm-hmm. think about ice cream you're going to think about ice cream yeah. you know so the therapist said to me just let it sit there let it in and let it pass. And, mm-hmm. it, and it like really helped me just any of those kind of thoughts that would come in and I, you know, my instinct was to put them in a little Pandora's box mm-hmm. in my brain and mm-hmm. just shove them to the base. But it never worked like that. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, what I started. Yeah, compartmentalizing not always
0: work. You can only do it for so long.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. the best thing you can do is just say, come on in, get comfortable. I don't give a fuck if you're in my brain. Just sit there and you notice that it just passes sooner. Lovely. It just goes out the window and you just, yeah, try and carry on with your day. But, I mean, in terms of like lessons for your listeners, I would say, you know, looking out for those signs in the beginning, it's obviously difficult to ascertain whether it is genuine kind of chivalry or, or kind of, you know, genuine um, love feelings of persuasion. love at first sight, all those things, or if it's um, there's a dubious nature to it but one of the things i noticed is like obviously this um declarations of love very early on this constant texting and messaging of like loving love bombing love but it's love bombing mm-hmm. but um and gifts gifts oh, yeah. stuff like this um this like in terms of the practical advice though like listen to your gut um and and keep an eye on things like practical advice like keep an eye on things like your passwords your locations like this let your know let your early days when you're dating someone let your friends know where you're going Mm -hmm. and with who you know at least one person Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff can really like save you in a Mm -hmm. situation obviously we're talking about someone that you end up in a relationship causing um you know abusing you but just keep your friends in the loop about things that are going on because you might need them at a point, or they might sort of not realize what's going on in your life, and then all of a sudden things blow up, and you're, you know, and then you're having aware. to sort of, you know, explain to things later, explain to them later. Um, but other advice I would say in the positive side of things is despite what happened to me, you have to keep your heart open. You have to, if you want to go forward and have successful relationships in whatever form that is, you need to not punish new people for old people's crimes.
0: That's a lovely thing
1: to say. It's 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 not always the case that they're going to end up being, you know, some crazy stalking or, um, you know, abusive person. Mm-hmm. You have to keep your heart open. Otherwise, you're just never, ever going to, like, find that peace and that love in your life. Yeah. You have to be open you know just be thoughtful about it oh Sophie that was lovely well (laughs) cheers to that cheers thank you so much for
0: coming on and sharing that story
1: that's of course I feel like I'm losing my voice (laughs) no it's great it was lovely
0: Hi lads, thank you so much again for listening and I really hope you enjoyed the show. For more episodes, please do like, share and subscribe so we can get the word out. And I also want to hear about your dating experiences, no matter what city, no matter what country you're living in, please do get in touch. You can reach out to me on Instagram at datinginberlin_book, underscore book, or you can email me at datinginberlinbook at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.